Yeah, welcome to East Van again, Sean. This is Crank. You know, I'm known as House of Major, Major in the Street. We're broadcasting live today from my shop on uh, 236 Hastings. Me and my brother, Robbie G., we have a story here, and uh, I'm glad you got us on because uh, I've been wanting to tell my story to somebody. The biggest thing about what we're doing right now is we've single-handedly shown that it doesn't matter where you come from in life and uh, your choices and, you know, where you've been, what you've been, you know, you can switch all that and apply so many things to the game in terms of the swag because my story is basically one of just being a gang influenced my whole life, being a gang member, being a chief and counsel to a gang, you know, running that whole shit and then just escalating out into my own path of just being one chief operation bombing the street. What was it like for you growing up, Kring? I grew up in, uh, I grew up between uh, the north end of Winnipeg, Manitoba, and Vancouver, Canada. My, uh, my, it's a pretty, it's you know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty basic story of the parents and their addictions. And you know, my my parents were both drug addicts, and you know, I lived, I lived either with my dad when he was around a bit, or with my mom in between like child and family services and foster care and that whole bullshit. But like my parents were basically not around. Like my mom would just take off for days. So we were basically running around at an early age, just, you know, me and uh, my older brother, just getting up to mayhem, you know, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a very uh, happy childhood in the sense that the biggest thing, one of the biggest things I remember about my mother is uh, rest in peace. She would leave me at places where I don't even know the people and they would just, you know, she would pop in every few days and you would see her and it would be all hugs and love for mom. But then, you know, she was gone again, you know, just dealing with her own shit. And uh, it took me being a grown man myself to realize, like, you know, if when you're caught up in shit, like, you know, it's just that that takes you away, you know, it takes you away into a world where it's like nothing matters. You know what I mean? Like, luckily for me, I've kind of, you know, escalated into a point now in life where I'm just like, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing the things I used to do, but I've seen it from a, like a grown person aspect, right? You said RIP. Yeah. RIP for your mom. Definitely there. How old were you when she died, man? So I was 16 when my mom passed. Uh, I was living in uh, a city, a small town. I don't know what she was even doing living in that city. I had just recently got out from uh, prison. And uh, yeah, it was the last time I was living with my mom. And uh, she would just got to the point where she had literally just drugged and drank herself to death. And uh, yeah, man, I remember the last time I seen her, she was actually kicking me out. She was kicking me out of the house like because we were always bringing the party back to the house. And it was a smaller town. So when you threw parties in that town, like the whole three towns over would come, you know, so like she was... She was caught up and I remember uh, I actually stole a car and left that town and basically that was the last time I seen my mom. I ended up hearing a couple weeks later while I was coming back to uh, Vancouver to hang out with uh, my auntie that she had passed and I never even went to her funeral as sad to say as it is bro. I just like I had warrants in that city and I wasn't going back to jail just to go put my mom in uh, an urn. That is so sad. So you said that you were in prison before that. Was that your first time in prison, and what was it for? Okay, well, my first time in prison was 12 years old, bro. I was literally, <sighs> you know, 
thrown in jail for breaking into the group home I was staying in, and they came and picked me up, put me in jail, released me, and then uh, it just like my whole my whole mayhem of my childhood and all the crime and stuff. It really started when I was like that's that same age because from when I was 12 years old to basically five years ago, I never I never was on the streets more than a year at a time. So the fact that I've actually you know been out for the last five years on wood uh, you know i'm still here is uh, definitely a blessing but uh, yeah i started doing time when i was 12 years old bro when i was 13 i was sentenced to uh a year in custody for uh stealing a couple cars going on a couple high speed chases you know the typical delinquency of a 13 year old kid running around north end of winnipeg at the time and uh yeah it turned into a it turned into a longer bit because I got caught up in uh, Manitoba Youth Center and uh, we actually escaped from Manitoba Youth Center when I was 13 years old. We were a couple older kids that were, uh, they were looking at some time and uh, it was like, it was straight out of the movies. Like one of those scenes where, you know, the door was left unlocked, which left access to a gate that was still locked, but, you know, we were able to bang off a couple locks and bend up the gate and we're out of there like that was, that was a prison escape i was a prison escape at 13 man wow and did they catch up with you caught up with me caught up with me a couple months later uh stealing stealing from uh sears i think i was stealing a laptop and uh, i got caught so i had the escape and i had everything together so collectively i was doing a couple of years sentence when you're 13 years old, like that's a bit of time, you know, you don't, you don't think about it. Uh, you think it's over, you know, like, uh, you know, so I was in for a minute there before I actually got released. And then after I got released, the delinquency just continued, man. Like I wasn't out too long before I was, uh, going back to prison for, uh, something that had happened where somebody got shot with a pellet gun back into the system. You know what I mean? Like it, uh, it just it just started from there. It just kept going. It never it never stopped. Actually, it never stopped. What's the gang cult culture like out there? Like in America, it was like street gangs, Bloods, Crips, Blue, Red, all that stuff. Yeah, that that gets me to exactly you know what you know. I look I look at all these podcasts, bro, and you don't really hear a lot about the Canadian aspect of like things that are going on in Canada or just the histories in general and. Uh, I just thought it was, you know, I just thought it's something that it, it always gets misrepresented somehow, some way. Certain people, certain people, you know, they've, they've been about that life and they have stories to tell. But a lot of the people that do these videos, it's, they're, they're doing them, but they're telling stories about stuff that's just not actually, you know, 100% factual. And like, you kind of sit back sometimes and just look at it and you laugh. People are, I get it, people doing it for views and shit. And, you know, uh, me coming on here is not even about trying to glorify uh, uh, gang culture or anything like that. You know, in my, in my eyes, I've become just like a, uh, a one-person swag gang operation. So the whole gang thing out here doesn't mean anything to me because I've always kind of, even though I've been, I've been part of gang, I've always been on my own two feet anyway. So I've never looked at it in that perspective, right? But the gang culture out here is mostly First Nation gangs that evolved to just, you know what I mean, just just what it is no different than the states how you would have uh different groups of uh, uh african americans or even white people for that matter just you know ganging up grouping out and then you know what i mean that's what it is there's fucking uh it, i'm sure there's all sorts of things that go on out here in terms of the same the same uh gang culture stuff that happens in the states when it comes to every different aspect but canada's always been one of those places where 
you don't hear a lot about it because just I don't know. It just nobody you, nobody really talks about it. I guess. So are you saying that it's gangs by race? Is it by neighborhood? Is it by what? What are you saying? Are you, what are you talking? The prison system? No, no. In Canada, the street gangs. Is it by neighborhood? Is it by race? How do they form? The street gangs and in, in my my aspect of street gangs in Canada, you know, really comes all from the same city. You know what I mean? Uh, like anybody who was living in uh, Winnipeg in the late '80s, early '90s, like a lot of the groups, they all came from the same places. You know what I mean? Like I'm not here to tell their stories or give a fuck about them for that matter because I never have, never will, and I'm just like it's it's no different than uh, just a lot of the same stuff you see on TV from different countries. It's just you know adolescent youths that are you know they they they're not going anywhere. They don't have parents that are around. You know they're they're misguided, and next thing you know, you're either uh, clicked up with a group when you're hitting the prison system, or you're on the streets hanging out with people that you really think are your family. But uh, you know it, it always takes the people that have been around you know, that have made it to their 40s and 50s to, to kind of let these, these young cats know, like, it doesn't matter where you go in that whole scheme of things. Like, you could be the guy at the top from, you know, you used to be the guy sharpening the shanks in the shower. You could be the guy telling the guy to sharpen the shanks in the shower. It's not going to get you anywhere on the street. It ain't doing shit for you. There's like, there's nothing to it. All your, all your real homies will be dead or gone. You know what I mean? Like, it's... Uh, it's it's not something that the young cat should be signing up for because there's really, there's not much with it, right? How did you end up shooting someone at age fifteen? Well, it was for the record, it was a pellet gun. For the record, it was a pellet gun, but uh, it was just a party that happened, and uh, somebody somebody had said something, and you know, just that that culture of like being around uh, you know a bunch of kids that you know feel like you have to always be armed or you have to be living that lifestyle because you see it on tv you know i was going to school with uh pellet guns and like you know big knives thinking i was cool when i was 15 so if i'm at a party and somebody accosted me you know to me that was just no-brainer you know it came out he got he you know he got shot with the pellet gun a couple times and you know it, it went in so the cops did come and you know, back to prison I went, you know, seven months in jail, and then I got back out. And what was that jail time like? That was doing time base. That was doing time in uh, Dojak Youth Center in uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. So uh, it was basically all adolescent, you know, a, lo a large First Nations population. I was shout out, by the way, you know, my dad's First Nations, so I'm always... I always consider myself like, you know, uh, the, the Caucasian in the room, even though my whole history has been growing up around First Nations people and, you know, being in the system, being a First Nations representative, too. So it's it's that's that's kind of what makes my story a little bit different, bro, is that, you know, I've never really been with the grain of anything out, out in the system, even in general. You know what I mean? And I could touch on that a little bit more, too, but uh yeah, doing that six months in uh, Dojak Youth Center in Regina, is, it's part of my story because the same people that I was in the Youth Center in Regina when I was 16, turning 17, were the same people I was in maximum security with a couple years later when I started my journey, uh, you know, doing time in maximum security penitentiaries in Canada, which, you know, at 18 years old, it's like you're, you're, your life's only kind of going one way at that point, right?
So you rose up to run your own gang, but the, your race, your background was a problem. I've always, I, I have the, I have the biggest, you know, the biggest, uh, the biggest ego. So in some ways, because, you know, the only thing, one of the only things I've ever been proud of in my life is that even being oppressed by, you know, some of my own guys, like I still stuck it out. And, uh, yeah, like, I'm not, I'm not scared to say like when, when I was, when I was in the gangbang thing and that was my thing and that's what I was doing. Like, you know, I was a fucking chief and council type person where, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a little guy, man. Like I've been around so long where, it, it, there's nobody left even to kind of tell me what to do. And even with me escalating to do my own shit with, uh, you know, my brand and everything I represent right now, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, man, because that's still part of who I am, but it's, uh, it never got me anywhere. And it's, it's not to be glorified. It's just, it's just a weird situation with me because like, I look for the most part, like a white guy and, you know, you kind of got to wonder, like, how, how does somebody get the respect of, like, a group of First Nations men behind them in a situation where, you know, you're in you're in prison and it's the bravado and shit, you know what I mean? Like, to me, that's a cool story, you know what I mean? And I feel like it's something that, you know, has happened. And, you know, shout out to the Métis putting it down because, you know, whenever I was doing that shit and that was my lifestyle, it was always about pedal to the floor. You know, we're out here, you know, I'm out here by myself, you know, represent, even though I got 40 fucking guys I don't even know about doing bullshit, I was still holding it down myself, right? So who was trying to kill you at the point of the story where you were going around in cabs with a machine gun? <laughs> uh, 2007, 2007 was a, was a pretty interesting year for me, bro, and honestly... When I think back to my whole history and uh, being out here in the city of Vancouver and the city of Surrey, for that matter, and, uh, you know, I, I was always somebody who, even though there was, there was big groups that were always in the news, getting a lot of limelight, you know, all the, the highlights for shit, because there, were, those, there was always shit happening. There was always people doing shit, but I was always the person that was kind of stuck on the block where... I wasn't balling out of control. You know, I wasn't making money, like real big money, but I was like, I stuck being the guy who just like wouldn't let go of what he had at the time out there. And, you know, that just meant basically having some, uh, having some issues. I guess you could say the biggest issue, and I'll only throw these guys' names out there because they're PC fucking squids would be like, uh, the crime family. That was, you know what I mean? Fucking uh, nobody who I ever liked, but, uh, those are the big boys that you could say were trying to trying to fucking you know flex on Major, but Major never went nowhere, and Major was always there to hold it down. So what happened? You know, you had your machine gun, you went to do a deal, and a guy from an opposing gang tried to grab your chain. Uh that this was this was an incident that happened at a crack shack where uh, I got, well, I did get shot in the head. I got pistol whipped in the head. I got pistol whipped in the head uh, by a group of uh, individuals. I won't say their names. Uh, I've said too much as it is. But uh, this is actually a funny story, bro, because it's probably the first time in my life that uh, I've ever shit my pants, but I had no shit inside me, so nothing <laughs> came out. I got pistol whipped in the back of the head by a group of individuals that came in, that came into the house and uh, they wanted their money back from somebody who had gotten robbed. 
And uh, the one guy was like, you know, he was, these, these guys were ready. These guys were ready for anything, basically. And uh, when the one guy grabbed my chain was when I got up, but they were so prepared for like some type of confrontation. The one guy pistol whipped me and they, like, just, I remember the shock of it. Like it literally made me feel like I defecated, but I had nothing in me. And it was crazy. Like it was just like, a room full of people and then me them talking real fast in their language and then them all just leaving as fast as they had come in and even done that with like nothing else that happened but uh at that point in my life it was definitely uh one of those times where i don't think there was a moment where i didn't have like just that that rage in me of everything that was going on and you know with the drugs and uh you know, you got the firearms and just the not giving a shit about anything. It's like, you know, it's very easy. It could have been, uh, could have been, uh, a situation where, you know, I could have either lost my life or perhaps never got out of prison again too. Right. Did you seek revenge for that? Ah, uh, you know what? Honestly, bro, when I went to jail between 2007 and 2016, all those guys all fucking killed each other in one way or another, bro. Like, you know, anybody who I didn't like, they, they were all smoked out and, you know, like fucking, you know, shitty deal to anybody who caught cases and, you know, did time for he's smoking out fucking PC goofs. But, uh, yeah, man, like, it just, I, I, for the first time in my life when I got out of prison, I never really had that vibe where I had anybody to worry about. You know, I never had that vibe where there's money on my my head. So, you know, you have that the vest on and the burner on you at all times. And you're just trying to live. Like, when I got out this time, it was like chilling in a halfway house, like trying to figure out how I'm going to get ahead of the game and then never go back to jail again. And then that's when I figured out I need to put some swag in the game. So, you know, I got going with my shit, with my, uh, my business and... Uh, that's that's the end part of the story too but that's what i'm doing now but the whole venture in between the five years like the brand actually started from the basement of a halfway house in new westminster <laughs> so i used to get up every morning and just make everything i could push it onto the block because that's all i know is just go where the money's at you know go where the hustlers are where the women are at and then i would sit there and basically try and convince people to buy my shit and it just turned it like a daily thing where I got started mm -hmm. to do it and then pushing it in the malls, getting it in the malls and getting your own spots and like up, down, up, down. And, you know, I, I can touch a bit more about the in-betweens on that, but like I'm on the third store here that I've had and been part of in three years. Like this is a collab store with me and a friend of mine. We both have clothing brands. Shout out East Van Clothing. <laughs> and then, but it's technically the third, the third store that I've been, uh, that I've, been part of in three years so it, it, it's, it's a crazy story even from that to actually think that that's what i'm doing now but it's really been one of those situations where you feel kind of stuck in the game and like you're pushing something that you know sells like dope because clothing sells like drugs and it's like you know it's mm -hmm. you find your hustle to doing what you're doing now and to me no matter what we, no matter what we talk about or what my history is it's all about trying to show people now that it doesn't matter what the fuck you were doing before what you're about before you put your mind to something you're going to get it done so what happened the day when you were out looking for drug dealers to rob you saw a guy holding a gun for someone that you disliked 
I, ah, that's, that's my case. That's my case, bro. So I, you know, I got, uh, I got caught up in, uh, 2007. Uh, I got arrested in a cab with a female friend and, uh, you know, they caught me with a couple of firearms. So, you know, I was looking at some time and I was actually, I had another case pending at the time too of, uh, somebody who was hanging out with me who had got caught with a firearm, a female who said the gun was mine. So I, I was doing all that, but last I came out in the end where I got given a two-year sentence. This is 2007, so, you know, it's not too outrageous to say it because these days you get more. But I got a two-year sentence for getting caught with two firearms, and I, I beat the other case. So I ended up getting out of jail in uh, summer of 2000. Uh, summer of 2008 for a few months I was out of jail and then I ended up getting this case where I you know I ran into a guy where you know I didn't like the guy you know he was the type of person who pretty much he was a meal ticket and he was uh you know he was holding some firearms for some somebody I didn't like so to me that was just like a a green light to just get whatever you can from the guy right so yeah and in the end uh yeah, in the end, he came to testify. Like he was, you know, he was a local, he was a local fucking goon, you know. And he just he came to court and said everything we did, and basically there was no getting out of it, you know. When you got somebody coming to testify saying that you, you know you broke their arms and legs and you know left them for dead in a ditch, you know the judge tend to believe that sometimes, right? So, yeah, I got given an eleven year sentence in my case. Nobody even died in my case. I was literally in remand with people that had straight up fucking smoked people. And they got out before I did. How much of the 11 years did you serve? Well, I did two-thirds on that. So I did two-thirds on, on that sentence. So you do almost eight years straight on that, right? And where did okay. you start out? That sentence, I started out in uh, Kent Maximum Security, 2007. My whole situation, remember, I was just, just did a pen bit before talking about getting it 11 years. I was just in the system for, you know, out of a two-year sentence, you're going to do 16 months. So I was just in the system, and I was even on parole when I actually committed my crime and got the 11 years. So being in the system and coming through the system, I had incurred a situation where I was getting hated on, like, segged out. I was segged out where they were trying to transfer me out, but I only was doing so much time because I had been, you know, been in the system where, you know, I, 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 you know, I did some time and then spent like almost eight months in SAG and then they tried to give me a medium security, put me in uh, a different uh, medium security institution segregation for a couple months because uh, some fucking riot in another institution where they just needed beds. So in the end, when I got out, I was still in SAG. So when I come back on the 11 years, bro, you got to remember everything that they're thinking about what's going on with me and uh, my potential for uh, he could be harmed. Like they had a thing where they thought my safety was in jeopardy. And this happens to all sorts of people in the system, right? You could get shipped out fucking. So unless you're going to go over to the protective custody side, you're not going anywhere. You're stuck in you're stuck in SEG or you're going to get a transfer out to another joint at some point. So when I came back in the system with my 11 years, I was still facing the same shit. So I did probably three months in SAG, 
trying to fucking see if like I could get it. They wouldn't get me out. I ended up getting shipped out to Saspen Max in uh, 2009. And I never got out of Saspen Max between uh, 2000, 2009 and 2017 is when I got out. Did you get your own cell in Max? Uh, it depends where you, yeah, for the most part you do these days, you do, you could bunk up though. You could bunk up. It's, uh, it's a situation in Canadian prisons where for the most part, they, you know, they try and get you a single cell, but I've been in situations where I've been in maximum security with a roommate. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not. It depends who it is, right? Yeah. Did you have any beefs with cellmates? Uh, not my specific cellmates. I wouldn't say that. I've never been in a... I had I ended up having beef with my own fucking guys, bro. Like that's my thing, you know what I mean? Like I got into uh you know, being in uh lockdown with your own with your own peeps sometimes creates power struggles, you know, and people that you know, there's a lot of bravado and you know, everybody's working out every day, everybody's fucking beefed up and everybody wants to be the boss and you know, there's people that are hating because they think they've done more shit than the next guy. So there's always gonna be there's always going to be drama, no matter how you're living like that. So my situation was I had a just like a racism situation where I had a guy who was basically, he didn't fucking like me because of the color of my skin. And to me, that was pretty fucked up. And just because like I'd been like, you know, a long time, long time with the same group of natives, basically. And, you know. He basically, he just, he just tried to roll on me one night with a couple of different guys. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm, I'm in a cell basically battling for my life because I know how we deal with people on our own range. Thanks for watching our podcast is with my sponsor. It's AG1 by Athletic Greens. So Jen, as a pregnant woman taking AG1 in the morning, how's that helped you? Well, with the low energy I've been having due to being pregnant, AG1 has helped give me that morning boost that I've really craved. Bear in mind, if you are pregnant, consult a doctor before taking AG1. Jen and I get AG1 delivered every month, which makes it super easy to have as a daily habit. With the single serving travel packs, I never have to miss a day. Just mixing the powder into that water, drinking it first thing every morning before breakfast. That simple. If you're looking for an easy way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Sean. Check it out. That's the word from our sponsor. Thanks for watching. Link in the description box below this video for AG1. So I don't know what the fuck is going on. You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm in a cell getting jumped by three guys and by the grace of just like, trying to i don't like just fucking hold on and figure out like I, I know it went on for probably about a maybe a minute minute or so and then somebody had said something where it, it caused them to kind of stop a bit and then they kind of backed out of the cell and i was like right by the doors of the cell anyways and this is back in uh sas pen medium where you're you're on a you're on a tier of cells but like there's not even a camera on the cell bro like on the range at this point like no bullshit it's like a it's an old school range, like 40 cells down. Like if someone's screaming at the back of the range and I wasn't screaming for that matter, but you wouldn't even hear them, you know, like the guards come around once an hour, do their thing. So the, just the little melee just ended up being like kind of 
and it spilled onto the range, like like in the middle of the range, and then it was just like a little bit of space given, and then you could tell there's a couple people that are drunk. Like this is basically a few guys being drunk rolling on their own guy, and mm. you know I don't know what the fuck is going on, bro. And the only thing I could think to do at the time is like I'm so wound up and I'm so fucking mad because I just got rolled on by like my own people. Is I'm just like fuck everybody, and then like like walk back into myself. And nobody came back in. And it just, like, there was a couple really tense moments there where I didn't know, like, really what was up. And, you know, I could hear some people kind of talking a couple cells down. Like, I'm, like, two cells down at the time from the guy who, like, he's supposed to be the guy with the floor on the range at the time. Like, you know what I mean? And, you know, finally, like, after a few minutes, I just, I roll in there to be like, yo, like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like, what's up? And. You know, this the only thing this guy could tell me is that supposedly the guy that, you know, accosted me, I'm not even gonna say his name, he doesn't deserve any 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 fucking anything because he got his in the end anyways, but he he thought it was gonna be a one on one beef with me and this guy from what he was told and you know, I'm just like, yo, fucking like nah man, like just fucking you see what happened like he didn't see what happened. Like maybe he caught the end. I think he was somebody who maybe said something that even stopped it. Maybe I don't know, right? But uh, the the biggest disappointing part about this bro was he didn't have the balls to sit the sit the council guys down and be like, Okay, we gotta deal with this guy. You know what I mean? Like he's scared of the fucking guy. And me, I'm just like I didn't have it in me to like just dip and leave the range so i just i just stuck it out and it's something that basically it blew over a couple days go by you know the guy's trying to apologize to me tell me he's drunk and he just got you know i'm just like you know just get away from me man you know what i mean just do your fucking thing and you got to remember at the time this is this is being on a what they call a, a security threat group range where they got 40 of your own fucking people that they think are associated with each other on the same range. And, you know, you're, you're, you're basically segged out at this point in the major population. We eventually walk back into, but this is like a time where like everybody's on the same group on the same range. And uh, yeah, man, like it was, it's, it, it stuck. It's, it worked itself out because about two months later, maybe even a little bit less, they offered me a job in uh, the gymnasium. And at the time, you got to remember, like, the group that I'm with is segged out from the population where the last time we were out there in population, supposedly one of the rival gang members got murdered. Some of their guys got stabbed up. So we're, we're, we're getting hated on pretty good right now. So they offer the job. They come up to the range. And uh, you would think normally the guy who has the floor the range would step up and take that job and be like i'm going to take that job even though there's a good chance there's going to be violence when i go down there he didn't step up nothing and uh i just seen an opportunity where i was like you know i didn't see the other guy who had recently rolled on me kind of stepping up either so i wanted to get the job so i ended up taking his job knowing damn well i'm going to the gym for something to happen i don't know what where it's going to come from but something's going to happen and uh so I, I take the job, I go down to the gym, I end up seeing a guy who had recently, uh, you know, rolled on a couple of my buddies with about a group of eight, nine guys. So in my head, I'm like, this guy's getting it. So I end up, boom, popping off on this guy, his buddy jumps in, 
it's a little battle for maybe a minute, and then they fucking hose us all down, take us all to SAG. So we're in SAG now, and the guy who recently rolled on me, he's thinking because I'm in SAG, and, you know, I got a little bit of influence too on the range, but, like, I'm not the guy who, like, tells people what to do or anything at, at this point. I'm just, like, I'm go- I'm almost content to be back going to the max, you know what I mean, rather than living with a piece of shit who, you know, fucking literally tried to fuck me up. Um, amongst my own people. So while I'm in SAG, this guy tries to uh, have a meeting. He calls together, we call it the council, you know, in, on these floors, right? He, he calls the council together and he uses me as a scapegoat where he's like, uh, this guy should have took that job. Uh, Crink shouldn't have had to take that job and go down there and battle and fucking blah, blah. Like, So he signs this guy up for a D board, which is like, you know, letting your own guys beat the fuck out of you for a minute and lets it go for two minutes. And then after the two minutes goes in and does something that's just really uh, fucking heartless and goofy and long story short, the guy that got fucked up, he ended up leaving the range though. He didn't stay. So he left the range. There's, there's nothing could do to save him. So now the guy who's got the big head, he's got the wheel now. On, on the range and I'm in SEG and I think I'm going back to the max anyway. So I'm kind of indifferent towards what's going on up there. And then they let me out of SEG. I didn't, nobody up there thought I was going back, thought I was coming back to the range. So I come back to the range. I wasn't on the range, maybe fucking 15 minutes before a couple guys are like, yo, so what's up with this guy? Like, and I'm like, gotta go you know he's gotta go so it was one of those situations where his own karma kind of caused him to he kinda, he caught it in the end anyways you know what i mean and it was one of the it was just a situation where it's always like the death of a the death of a the person that's in charge is usually amongst their own guys it's all no different than like the mafia scene you know what i mean like fucking so uh that situation worked out and uh whether I, whether I think about it in this context or not, but that was the whole situation that played out for me to even be in the position I was in, where afterwards it was like, you know, we had a large group of people who had a lot of respect for just even me in general, for sticking it out, going through what I went through with my own guys, to, you know what I mean? Like, being willing to go, you know, try and put in some work too, like just, you know, be a representative, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, so it ended up just, you know, being me, you know, making some moves eventually, which actually got us back out into the population. And, you know, I get the, I guess you could call it in one way, it, to me, it's like almost a fucking, as a man, you know, it was like, it was a pretty, it was a pretty fucking macho moment, man, walking out back into a prison where, you know, we're back into the population now, you know, we got fucking drugs, we got a cell phone. And we're here. We're back. You know what I mean? And that's that's really what it was for my story. And uh, there's nobody uh, who could say different. Like, I did that. Did anyone close to you get killed? I've never actually incurred a loss, really, I don't think. Well, besides not in prison. But I've seen, I've seen and, you know, heard of a lot of death in prison with, you know, people amongst their either fighting with people or fighting amongst themselves and 
you know, a, a lot of, uh, you don't hear about a whole shitload of murders in the Canadian system. Like, that, it happens. Don't get me wrong. It happens. But a lot of them that have happened even back in my time when I was, like, you know, coming up in the system and whatnot, it was mostly, like, people, their own guys, like, people turning on their own people, right? And, uh, yeah, like, it was, I was in the system basically from, you know, the late 90s when I came into the, you know, Drumheller Penitentiary was the first penitentiary I ever hit because I ended up picking up some time in uh, just passing through Alberta. And, uh, yeah, so I ended up in Drum. That was 90, the end of 97, I believe. And then I never really got out of the system until, until 2017. So 2017 from 97, you know, that's the 20 years in the system. And it's still like, it's, it's half your life, basically. You know, I'm fucking, I'm 44 years old right now. And I'm ashamed to say that I literally spent half my life locked up behind prison walls. What about riots? Oh, we, we, I've, I've been in a couple of those. I've been in a couple of those. Couple Give of us a riot story. Oh ah, shit! I can't. The, the one, the one that I think of that comes to that comes to mind the most is mostly just uh, just in in general. It didn't even happen in the federal system. That's the thing. It didn't even happen in the federal system. It happened in a just a group of guys just taking over the range in the correctional system, and you know the 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 fucking. Uh, it was just, or actually, to tell you the truth, there was another one, too, in uh, Kent back in the day, but I wasn't there for it. But it was, I heard they actually even got into the, they got into the medical room that time where they got all the drugs. So this actually happened in the late 90s, and there was a riot in the Kent Institution. And, and there's been a few since, I imagine. You know, remember, I haven't been there last time I was actually in that joint, with would have been 2009. So... It's been a minute now. I feel like I'm aging myself a little bit here, but mm-hmm. yeah, there was a riot where they, they kicked in they kicked in the walls to the the actual medical part where they had all the the drugs and the methadone and the fucking pills and so I guess it was just a bunch of people sitting around in the gym just fucking getting lit, you know, telling the guards to bring it and you know mm-hmm. Thankfully, nobody, uh, I don't think anybody died, but I'm, I'm definitely sure I remember there was a couple ODs, the stories of some people overdosing and shit. Uh, in terms of me and uh, rioting, bro, like, I'll, I'll be straight with you. Like, I've been, like, when I was in the system, like, I've been so jacked up in the system where I'm sitting in segregation because, you know, I fucking ba- I banged out a, a prison guard and like I'm getting hated on so hard where it's almost like you're battling with the fucking guards every time you come out and like you're, you know, you're, you got, you're barricading, you're, you're grabbing the broomsticks and like fucking, you know, trying to smash whatever you can. So I, I can't tell you that I've been part of a really, really good full blown riot, but um, just from the system and the people I've been around and whatnot, I've definitely been, you know, that one degree of separation from hearing the stories about, you know, shit going down and, you know, the things that happen when the whole range is flooded and, you know, people are fucking dead three cells down, but, you know, nobody knows nothing about nothing because everybody's covered up with masks. And once those masks go on, that's the scariest part of being part of a situation like that. It doesn't matter if it, uh, turns into a riot or not because there's always a lot of times where everybody's jacked up and you know the masks come on we don't know what the fuck you're doing either you're gonna you know say fuck the guards and you know maybe a couple people that should have been bladed up 
two months ago are going to get it because it's, you know, the right time and everybody's, you know, round up. And But when those masks come on, anybody who's been in the system knows this. It's one of those times where it's like the people around you, they don't really give a fuck about you, bro. Like, you know, to, to them, you're just, you're, you're, you're almost entertainment because, you know, some people aren't getting out and some people just don't give a fuck. They don't care. What's the craziest thing you ever saw in prison? Mm. Oh my God. Let me think on that one. The craziest <laughs> thing I ever seen in prison. I got a, I, I take it back to uh, like just the story of, I think, I don't think I've ever told you this, but I was in the, the medium security part of the SAS pen in uh, about 2014. And I had a buddy shout out to rabbit. I had a buddy come in. Uh, this is a time too. We're in this prison, bro. Like these days you see cell phones and like there's, there's fucking pages for people with phones in prison, but in this joint at the time, like you, you wouldn't see a phone. It's just something that's like just not happening. And I know there's one other guy that actually, that's actually done it there at that time. And uh, I'm not going to say who that is, but we got, this guy came and threw it over the wall. And I had to actually hope that the guy that had first access to get out into that yard, wasn't going to just keep the thing for himself. But he kept it, but at the same time, we're on like a four-tier cell block, and he's way down in the committee office from the, you know, way down from the cell block, and uh, he got, I remember him looking out the window, putting thumbs up, just that feeling of like, okay, now how do we get this? But I had prepared for this to happen. For some reason, I just thought he was going to pussy out on bringing it upstairs because he would have had to walk through a metal detector, right? So I had this huge ass line and I, he put a hockey stick out the window and I'm telling you, if there was ever a perfect throw to ever be made, this thing was right over the motherfucking hockey stick. And I had yanked that thing up and like, like world, world fast record, shimmy, shimmy action. I had that thing in and I remember breaking it open. It was in, uh, they should pay me for this, but HTC one, uh, HTC one smartphone. And I just feel like my whole world changed, bro. I was like, mm-hmm. yes, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, we're going to do it now. And, uh, I'm not going to lie. Like within a, uh, uh, probably a month and a half after getting that, I was getting visits from a, a beautiful lady that, you know, lived in Calgary and I had all my buddies get, my buddies were getting their visit on and just everything changed for us basically by that moment. So that was the craziest shit that I've been through in terms of uh, something good happening in prison. You don't hear much of that when it's a crazy story. It's usually about somebody uh, getting hit up 50 times or, and I've seen those too, bro. Like I've been right next to people getting stabbed. You know what I mean? And like, it shocks you too, because you don't know, there's always that, that, you know, that always, that vibe's always in the air, but sometimes the vibe's not always in the air. Sometimes you don't know what the fuck is happening until it's already happening. And yeah, like I've been pretty close. Uh, I've been pretty close to shit like that. I could say that I honestly, I made it through the whole system without ever getting poked up, which is, you know, that, that happened. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people that happened to like, 
I don't need to glorify my balls by how many fucking people fucking stabbed me up while I was in jail. You know, like I've always held my own and I've always just been there where if something's going to happen, I'm going to be ready for it as best as I can. And basically, you know, if it's going down, it's going down. And in my time and the times where I've done prison time, it was, it was never a situation where I was in the system. I wasn't always in the system with people that I was, you know, good with. It was always a situation where it was just like me, you know, being that fucking uh, stigmas attached to me from, you know, my past with the native gang bullshit and just fucking, you know, doing shit on the streets where, you know, I was actually, you know, putting in that work, bro, where when you're doing shit on the streets, it's like, you're always going to have motherfuckers that'll hate you either way because they got friends of people that you either rob, you know, or you fucking, you pistol whip the guy in the club, but he's got a cousin who's in the system and he's just waiting for you to come in. So, you know, him and three of his buddies got something to do. You know, like I've been in situations even in prison where I've had people not like me. They don't even fucking know me or know anything about me. They just just don't want to like me because I've just been around, you know what I mean? Held my own and I wasn't on anybody else's dick or I never felt like I had to, you know, push all whatever I'm doing behind somebody else. I've been good on my own, basically, is what it is. Like, I've never really felt like, you know, I got along the best with uh, other people when I'm whacked out, you know, smoking heroin, snorting speed with the two pistols in the fucking back of the cab. You know, like, that's not, that's not a life where uh, you really have a lot of close friends. You know, you're lucky if you have uh, any friends. Like, in the end, like, I'm not envious of it, but Sometimes I wonder where my life would be if I would have chose to just just be doing my own thing and, you know, the friendships that I may have been able to build and whatnot instead of either being part of that culture and, you know, you know, you dedicate yourself to, you know, groups of people and you expect friendships out of it. But in the end, you sometimes find you've got no friends, bro. It's just you and, you know, there might be one guy from your old group of homies you might know you guys might kick it once in a while or, you know, fucking, you don't going to have a bunch of solid friendships usually when you've spent half your life in prison being around people that, you know, they just, they're, you know, living for themselves for the most part and coming in and out of prison and fighting their own battles, right? When you got stabbed in the jail, what was that over? And did they sneak up on you? And where did you get stabbed? I said I've never been stabbed in jail. Oh, I thought you said you had, sorry. So... Oh, don't get me wrong. I've been stabbed, bro. I got stabbed even fucking shit. The last time I got stabbed was probably about a year and a half ago. I had just opened my store at Surrey Central. And I know Surrey is not the same over there as it is over here. Um, but Surrey Central is uh, basically, to describe it a little bit, it's just neighborhood zombies, a lot of meth, a lot of, a lot of drug use, a lot of drug dealing, a lot of people doing shit. And it's no different. Like I've been out there on the block where people firing broad daylight into stores that are right next to you. It could be real out there too. And uh, I had just opened my store and I got into it with a guy who I felt was being disrespectful. So I actually hit the guy, but I made the mistake of letting him get back up because in my head I was thinking, remember, I've been in prison a lot. I'm thinking there's cameras in my own store. I can't just be hitting somebody and then stomping them out. Like, that's that's assault. You know what I mean? So I let him get back up. But when he got back up, he was mad. 
And yeah, it ended up basically being me with a stool trying to repel this guy from, he hit me, he hit me once through the ear, he took my, my ear in half. Um, and he got me a little bit on the arm too, but it was like, for the most part, the store was the biggest damage of everything. Like the store was just torn apart. And uh, in the end, it was me basically making him like kind of like a stalemate. We're like, I'm like, pick up the fucking, pick up the case. Like one of those little shelf cases, like he's like picking it up. And I got a, like a, it was, it was a very messed up scene and he left and uh, he never came back. And I'm glad he never came back because there would have been probably a good chance there would have been another partaking of something because I wasn't too happy about the situation, but I did manage to get out of it with my life. And uh, that was the last time I'd been stabbed. Um, if you want to hear a stabby story, Sean, is that what you're digging for here? I get you. Well, if you've been stabbed before, have you been stabbed? I've been stabbed. I've been shot. It's like anybody who is usually the people who live that life, you've, you've, you've dealt with that stuff. Like, I'm not even going to lie. I even shot myself with a nine millimeter through the ankle in a crack shack. If we want to really get dirty here, like I've done some dumb shit while uh, in my, uh, my flail of things, so to speak. Here is a word from today's sponsor, Aura. If you Google someone, you can find out all kinds of personal information about them. This information is accessible because of data brokers who profit by selling your information to robocallers, telemarketers, spammers. You can use my link, https dot dot forward slash forward slash aura dot com. Aura is A-U-R-A forward slash Sean Atwood, S-H-A-U-N-A-T-T Wood to try two weeks for free and see how many data brokers are sharing your info. Also linked in my description box on this YouTube version or scan the QR code on the screen. Aura also monitors your emails and passwords to see if they were involved in a data breach and exposed on the dark web and gives you the recommendations on what to do. Aura has almost every internet safety tool you'll ever need all inside one app. Why did you get shot? Well, I could never, I could never tell you that. I don't know why I got shot, bro. I couldn't tell you why I got shot. I could tell you why I shot myself, though. <laughs> it was good. Go for it. I walked into a place where it was, it was, it was kind of like my spot in the sense where I would give the people drugs that they would sell for me, and and with coming with that, you always get to protect the place too. You know, it's your place, right? So <laughs> I walked in there one night and. Uh, you know, I was doing some, uh, doing some drugs, drinking a little bit of the, the beverages, and uh, I just remember walking in. A couple of days before, there was a guy, and he was a really well-known guy, too. He used to have a lot of gold. He was supposed to be working my shack, and I came in, and he was on the knob like this. And he had his chains there, and I thought to myself, this is bullshit. I don't want my shack represented like this. So I took the chains off the guy. But I remember there being a group of people in the living room. And I remember telling them that if anybody says anything about me being here, they're going to get it. You know, like, they know, like I said it in a different wording to that. And there was some death threats, I'm sure. But uh, and I know I'm using a lot of quotation marks here. I'll stop that now. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I ended up threatening these people, telling them, don't say I was here, got the chain. So I'm back in, going back to the place now, and I got the chains on. And I, I'm thinking, if Buddy's there, 
I'm going to rob him because by this point, I'm already annoyed with the guy. You know what I mean? I come into the place, just regular crackheads, and I just remember ha- ha- pulling my pistol out. And for I don't know why, but I, I was just saying, I and I, I blew through the top of my ankle, and it came out the bottom of my heel. And it all happened, remember, this all happened in a split second, and I don't even remember it being a lot of pain. I don't think the pain really kicked in because remember, I don't want to like let it be known that I just shot myself. Like I'm just like still rolling into the trash. And I remember just leaving immediately. And then as soon as I got towards the back lane, I had uh, a car parked up the back lane. So I never park at this place. And I remember just like using the fence to crawl along the fence and like just I'm limping and I get to my car and, I knew a girl that lived in the same place my car was parked. So, like I hand her the gun and like shout out, uh, shout out to my uh, youngest son's mom. Um, hand her the gun. She runs in. And I drove myself to the hospital basically and uh, had to deal with that and uh, the police wondering what happened. And I just I played amnesia. I didn't remember anything. Wow. That was the story of that. That was the story of that. So that, that's, the, that's the story of me shooting myself and uh, shooting myself. But, uh, yeah, me getting shot is not something I really want to touch bases on too much right now because uh, it's just uh, some things that happened with that where the hood always knows about certain things that have happened and they'll always talk about it. But, it's, it's you know, it's an, like something where nobody's gone to jail or something. I'm, I'm just not comfortable talking about it. So two weeks before you got out, a guard lied, saying that you had threatened to kill him. Sass Pen Max, 2000, yeah, 2017, or 16, sorry. Get that mixed up for a bit for some reason. Uh, I was getting out. Remember, I've been in at this time. Even though over eight years straight, you know, I just did the 16 months before that, you know, it was like two bits back to back pretty much. Better part of 10 years altogether. So I'm getting ready to get out. And, uh, yeah, they, they popped my door one afternoon. And when you get your door popped, it's usually something like uh, in the middle of the afternoon. They don't pop you out like that unless it's like the keeper maybe wanting to talk to you or somebody important. And sure enough, I walk into a room. It's the cops, and they want to fingerprint me. I was just blown away by it. I'm like, what? Like, what the fuck for? You know? So yeah, they uh, a guard had actually made up a story that I had threatened them, even though me and him had verbal exchanges. But I'm not gonna make a death threat to a guard because you know, you know, you can get charged for that, and that's something they could charge you for. So I uh, sure I did tell him to fuck off, and you know, you're a piece of shit, and every other name in the book. But I wouldn't make a death threat to him. But he took whatever grudge against me he's had for, you know, however long. And, uh, yeah, man, he put a case on me. So I actually put my bail hearing off to the day before my release date. And I remember just thinking, if I don't get bail, I'm fucked. I'm going to be in for a little bit longer. They could possibly detain me now and make you do your whole bit from the bit you're doing. So it's not a good situation up in my head. I had just already got my my girlfriend back then. I had a girlfriend back then. She had just moved to Vancouver to be with me. Like, there's, you know, this this sucked that it was actually happening. And uh, I remember just going for bail. I didn't have a lawyer or nothing. So I didn't want to put it off. I just wanted to do it right then. 
I just told the judge, I'm like, yo, I'm basically in now, you know, over eight and a half years straight. And I just did a bit before that. I said, I, I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't threaten to kill him. I said, yes, I did say some things I'm not proud of, and but I wouldn't threaten him. Remember, he's saying I threatened to kill him, going to murder his family. I know where you live. I'm a fucking uh, uh, high-ranking game member. I'll have you killed. Like, he's saying all sorts of wild shit that nobody would say in front of a room full of guys anyway. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, so I got the, he, she gave me bail. Needless to say, she gave me bail. She gave me bail, and then I got my bail, and I took my parole to Vancouver halfway house, and that's when I got out. So even though I got out, there were still some trials and tribulations on the way to deal with because I'm out of the system now and you know I've, I've managed to get out and I'm in a halfway house, but I have this pending case that could send me back if I get found guilty. And I still have like a, a decent amount of time between my stat release, my two thirds and my warrant expiry, which is almost like three and a half, better part of three and a half years. So yeah, man, luckily I was able to get a lawyer and uh, you know, they ended up, pleading it down to basically me not saying I threatened to kill him, just saying that I, I threatened physical harm against him, and they were willing to let me plead guilty and get a probation order that was just stay out of province for six months type shit. So ended up beating the case anyways, and uh, that was one thing I was going through at the time. It wasn't the, worst, it wasn't the, the end of my experiences on parole, because my experiences on parole... I technically should have never got to live the whole, you know, three three plus years of being on parole, starting the brand and, you know, working with the brand and trying to make it because there was just so many obstacles put in my way. And it went from something as small as them not wanting me to smoke my medical marijuana. They wanted me to buy it from a certain place and, like, I just wanted to buy it from wherever and... They ended up throwing me in for a month, and they let me back out. And then after that, I was going through a SkyTrain. This couldn't happen to a nicer guy, I'll tell you this. I was going to a SkyTrain, like the, the trains out here, like the subway maybe out there. And I had a ticket, and I, I pumped through the I, – I hit the thing that punched me through the ticket, but it's not opening. So I bulldog my way through it. Wouldn't you know it, um, SkyTrain officer is right there, gets to see me fucking knock this thing off. To the ground it goes uh, – the police show up, and I guess I remember hearing the lady say that I'm sick of people always breaking these fucking things, and then they're arresting me for mischief, even though I'm on parole. So it doesn't matter what's happening with the charge. I'm going back to jail either way for the contact and the charge. So I'm sitting there, I'm talking to my, don't get a hold of my PO for about three weeks. They got a month to release you. Don't release you in that month. You're going to get seen by the board in the next 60 days or 90 days. So I finally get a hold of my PO and I tell her, not for this, like, you know, send me back if I'm doing something, but like, this is, this is, it's, it was an accident first off, you know what I mean? I had a ticket. That was the thing that saved me is I had a fucking ticket. And, uh, yeah, that's what, remember her saying that is I found out you had a ticket. If you didn't have a ticket, I'd have sent you back. Oh, fuck, whatever. I get back out. So I'm back out now, month and a half. I'm working. Um, trying to help take care of my uh, oldest son at the time. I got two old teenage boys at the time. They were a little bit younger at the time, you know, 10, 12, 13, growing up. So I moved this guy into my, my, my place because I don't got enough money for rent because I'm not selling drugs. 
I'm just basically trying to live, you know. I'm just trying to fucking stay on parole and just do what I'm doing with my clothing shit. The guy who I moved in knows I'm on parole. Big mistake telling him I'm on parole. Phones my PO, tells my PO I threatened him. No, no charges or nothing, nothing. Takes me back in. I get pulled back in. So this time, she's not letting me out in the 30 days. They want me to see the board to make a decision to let you out. So by the just something happened by the grace of the fact that my cousin Crystal was able to go into my email. She was able to pull the the email of the guy introducing himself. He had said in his paperwork interview with the PO that he knew me longer than he did. But in his in his email to me introducing himself, it was dated afterwards. So it was like it showed that he lied. So they let me sit there for four months. And remember this, Sean, I haven't been in fucking SAS Penn or I haven't been in Kent Institution since 2009. This is 2017 now. There's still, there's an issue because they feel there's somebody... Uh, 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 what they what they say is, uh, you know how a lot of gangs put a K at the end of uh, kill the other gang. Like if there's a gang called fucking ZZ, BBAA, and they put a, a K on the end of it, okay, that means they're killing all those other gang members. So there's a guy in population that because he has a K on the end of the gang that he's in, and it's different from the gang they think I'm still in and part of, I'm in segregation. I can't get in the population. So I sat there for four months. They were going to send me to Collins Bay. No bullshit. I still got the paperwork. I was getting sent to Collins Bay because I had an incompatible in the system. So I was still getting fucked in the system either way. This is seven, eight, nine years later. And so I sat there for four months waiting to see the parole board. And because of that email, the parole board let me out. Showing that the guy was like, he's lied, he lied, man. And if it wasn't for basically my cousin getting that email to my PO, I went back in. So I technically should have never even lived that whole time because I was just set up for failure. You know what I mean? They kept trying to pull me in, kept trying to pull me in, man. But I just kept fucking grinding. And it got to the point where I was living at the halfway house and they were trying to force me to work. Like they wanted me to do a nine to five job. And I had done every different job in management imaginable i was the kitchen the kitchen uh, pot guy i was like salesperson at a clothing place and all sorts of construction gigs i just wanted to make my clothes that's it so i took over the basement in the halfway house i started making a lot of mess on the carpet and i got into the point where i was just like yeah, you guys could send me back to prison i don't want to work i want to make these clothes i got my stuff in some malls I'm making progress, you know, I'm not doing fucking meth, I'm not doing heroin, I'm just, I'm just leave me alone. And it got to the point where they just kind of left me alone and I was able to uh, get through it. And I'm not going to say I did it squeaky clean, like the whole time, like there was times where I was on the block with fucking heroin in my ass and like I was chipping $20 piece, like just trying to make some money just to live, man. And uh yeah, it was a, it was it was a hard process of just getting off parole and getting put into the, the position to actually even make something of yourself and try because uh, you know you don't have a lot of life skills when you've spent uh, you never spent a year on the street. You're just learning how to live. Like even now, like I've spent a couple of years on the street and I'm learning how to live. And I, I sometimes wonder if I would have been able to snap out of this like 
12, 13, 14 years ago where I would be right now because the stuff that we're doing with uh, this major streetwear in general is like, it's, it's, it's nuts. Like it, it has such a, everybody loves it. It's got a thousand percent sales record. Like we just keep making rack after rack and then people are finally doing, I'm finally doing something I love and I'm making money doing it. And I, I'm, I'm getting little bits of success where I feel like the sky's the limit. We could go anywhere. And I just feel like I wish I had that mentality 15 years ago because I wasted a lot of time, man. And that's, uh, if there's one message I could get today to any, any of the youth that might come across my story or even think it's the least bit interesting is don't be afraid to just, you know, take chances on yourself and uh, not be afraid of failing no matter what you're doing and how far outside the box you're going to stand, putting yourself in your own lane and creating, you know, something that, you know, a job that you love. And that's the biggest part of working for me is if you're not doing something you love, you ain't going to do it. You're not going to be successful at it, that's for sure. How did the clothing brand get so successful then? Well, we're on our third store now, Sean. I, I just I started doing this thing. I call it the, the major in the street and the swag gang. So the swag gang is basically about just people and uh, brand ambassadors that love the brand and, you know, supporting the brand and fucking everything that goes along with that. Me basically creating major street where the original drawings were basically from prison. So, you know, for to come out here and actually start doing this. And I used to take a rack of clothing out of my halfway house. And I would walk over the Pula bridge, which leads into Surrey just to get to this one clothing store. It was a convenience store. It was my buddy, RIP Jimmy. He had a convenience store. He fell in love with my brand where he always wanted to buy stuff from me. So I knew if I could just get to this store every day, I'd be able to get money. And then it turned into me basically just kind of sitting outside the store, harassing people to buy my shit. I used to go around the malls at uh, Central City Mall with a bag of clothing. At this time, I had my stuff in three different stores in the same mall. It was very weird. It was before I ever had my own spot. I didn't get that. That was kind of overwhelming it, but I thought it was pretty cool. So I, I, I did that. And I would go up to people and I'd be like, yo, buy my shit, check this out. It's something different, you know, showing them the shit. So it was really a hardcore, just on the street press of actually letting people know about my stuff. And then when I got to Rack, I would start posting up with the Rack. And then my buddy would start buying stuff and putting it up in his store. And got to the point where I had a, a boutique above his convenience store. So I had like a private boutique up there where it was my own store. And he had a store downstairs, and then he dropped uh, he dropped and died one day of a heart attack. He, this is a good guy, man. Like, he had a lot of plans. Like, he wanted to help invest in my business. He wasn't part of my business, per se, but he wanted to be part of my business, right? And uh, I remember we had a conversation where he really wanted to take out a loan on his place and go to Vietnam, where he's from, and, you know, go check out, you know, some maybe some manufacturers out there, but... He just died one day. So then his wife came back into the picture and basically after me taking care of the store for five months, you got to remember this is a neighborhood where this is the only convenience store in this whole neighborhood. And it's a neighborhood like right in the, it's, it's, it's a hood, so to speak. So I, I did this with five months with my youngest son living with me and we took care of the store and then she pushed me out of there. So when she pushed me out of there, that was the demise of my first major boutique. The second major boutique happened about 
eight months after I got kicked out of that place, I ended up getting an opportunity at the busiest train station in the city of Surrey, Surrey Central, to have a part of a store where I'd be the up, up front little square part, you know what I mean? Like a boutique inside of a phone store. So yeah, I ended up getting in there. I paid everything I had. I had enough to pay the rent. The rent was $2,500 to rent that little space. And I had enough to pay the rent. And that was it. Got in there and from nothing, basically started making my stuff, selling it. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I was there for about a year and a half. And then I got into a, I basically just got fucked over by the landlord. The, the long story short, bro, I didn't have a lease. And he wanted somebody else in there willing to give him more money. I wasn't willing to give him shit. So I parted ways after packing up all my stuff. He tried to tell me to stay. And I was like, you're going to do that now. I'm not going to wait till the next time you get pissed off to tell me to fucking bounce. And I left. That was it. So I let about eight months went by. And then I swear this is just through, you know, good vibes, hard work, just, you know, people being real. Um, I ended up linking up with uh, a local clothing designer who's out here working, pushing a rack around on the streets, too. But that's part of what I do, too, is like just a rack in the streets, pushing it on people, right? Taking a rack and just taking it to the like the city blocks where, you know, the, the, the shit's going down. And I started doing that. And then, you know, we linked up and he was kind of, he was on the same vibe where he was like, you know, he wanted to get open, too, and get a spot. And he found a dope spot. You know, invited me to be his partner on it, and now we're just we're down here. We've been open for two months now only, and we're self-funded. We've never had a grant for this store. Like we're just you know getting it done, putting swag in the game, and uh, where it goes from here, anybody is anybody's guess, man. The last part of this story, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be a situation where I get gunned down in front of my store and my kids, you know, blow up off my shit and get paid off it. All I know is that. I put in the work for the brand to be respected as a real streetwear brand because it's been in the streets. It's been out there. Anybody who, who knows this city of Vancouver to say that they haven't seen it out there in the streets or me out there doing my thing, they're not watching the same story. And uh, nobody's really got that story, Sean. So I'm actually glad that you came and uh, wanted to do this podcast with me. And uh, the only people that ever came to me, they came to me about the music. Because during the whole time this has been going on with the brand, we kind of became the guy the guy that was throwing local uh, hip-hop shows in my city of Surrey, too. So it's just weird how I kind of escalate into that because it was only, I was only doing it for fun. And then eventually the newspaper came and hit me up March 14th, that front page shot. Uh, that was me and uh, the DJ from, uh, from Shakers, a place where I was doing a hip-hop show. And they wanted to talk about the local music, but they never touched on the brand. So I've never really talked about the brand with anybody because the brand to me, I feel is the most interesting part about what's going on because it's literally, uh, I, I call it the swag trap. Like it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, instead of being that guy, you know, feeling like you've got to always have drugs and shit to get money. I just, I'm the guy now where as long as I get my hands on clothing, I can get money because, you know, people, they like the shit that I represent and they like my stuff. And, you know, they know that at the very least, I try. You know, some people don't try. Crink. Well, congratulations on your success, man. That's phenomenal. Appreciate you, man. Thanks for having me on, bro. Where can the viewers find you and follow you online? I, I implore anybody to check out uh, 
House of Major FNGS on Instagram. Uh, I have a Facebook page too, Crink Major. I go by a crank, but people call me major in the streets because of the brand. And shout out, too, to my, my partner in swag down here, East Van Alley Cat, who does all the welcome to East Van swag, too. That's the curtain behind me here. And, uh, yeah, man, definitely check us out. Uh, check out our Instagram. We always got a lot of good items on there. And it's, it's an interesting story, man. Stay tuned. Follow this story, guys. All the Crinks links will be in the description box below this video. So please check them out. Let us know in the comments what you think. Thanks for watching. Cheers, Crink. Yeah, so